and welcome aboard the Battleship Pretension. I am Tyler Smith. I am David Bax. And thank you for listening. David, how you doing? Um, well, I'm sorry that we're a day late. And a dollar short, baby. <laughs> <laughs> David is... <laughs> David. David is dying. I did not expect my joke to uh, have that effect on him. Um, but, uh, yeah, it was a busy weekend for us, yeah, David. No more, so, more so you than, than myself. But uh, it's been very hot. And, yeah. Uh, it, well, it, it broke today. It broke to Yes, it did. Speaking of things that broke today, or broke last night, actually, some bad news. That's right. My heart. Oh, I meant the bad news broke. But, yes, oh, okay. the bad news also broke my heart. Uh, we've lost George Carlin. Yeah. I don't like that phrase. Why not? Not even a little. I don't know why. It just, I mean, he is, you know, he truly is like, you know, a national treasure and all that. But like when someone's like, we've lost him. And it's just like, well, I didn't know him, you know, and my guess is whoever's saying that phrase probably didn't know him either. And I know that but everybody's he, lost him, but it's I different. don't know. <clears throat> in a way, his, at least his work, don't you think in a way it kind of belonged to everybody? I suppose. I guess I just, just in general, I don't... If he was a part of our one, national I, I guess, consciousness. I guess with some people it does, that phrase really does apply. But just in general, I don't, I don't, it just frustrates me Like I, when somebody is like, yes, we, like in court. It's like, you're not a member of his family. You're not uh-huh. directly mourning him, you know. Um, but at the same time, with somebody like him who's, who is so, even in later years, so prolific... You know, yeah, and the fact that he was still working. Exactly. Um, so yes, I'm, we've lost George Carlin. I'm okay with saying that for George Carlin. Okay. And uh, uh, we just needed to mention it. There's not really a whole lot we can say about it. Right. You know, um, I mean, it wouldn't. <laughs> it wouldn't be very nice of us to talk at length about his movies. Right, exactly. <laughs> he was known for his comedy, except for of course the Bill and Ted movies. Of course. Which is really probably the first time I knew of him when I was young. Because I'm a little too old for Thomas the Tank Engine. How crazy is that? Like, <laughs> who... Like, the producer of that show must have been just, like, either just, like, selling himself out where he's just like, all right, I got to make some money. Let's do Thomas the Tank. But, like, he every every right and left, he, like, tried to incorporate... It's like, let's put George Carlin in here just for my amusement. Because it's just... Well, the the narrators went... Alec Baldwin. Al- yeah. George Carlin, yeah, Ringo Starr, yeah. <laughs> it, just, it seems like you usually probably just like throwing darts at celebrity, yeah. like a yeah. collage of celebrity faces. <laughs> it's it's like he's walking down the Hollywood Walk of Fame. It's like, all right, the next three stars I hit. <laughs> um, but uh, so yeah, I'm. It's a bummer about him. It's also a bummer about uh, Stan Winston. Stan Winston. Yeah, we. Yeah, I mean, a lot of people have passed lately. Yeah. Um, you know, uh, who Roy Scheider, Charlton Heston, Sidney Pollack, Sid Charisse, right. um, Tim Russert. I mean, he's not part of the movies, but right, it's just right. like a lot of people. Harvey but, Corman. Harvey Corman, of course, yeah. And, you know, all these people meant something to us, you know, but and they were, in, in some cases, they were luminaries, you know, and, right. and they'll never be forgotten. But with Stan Winston, I feel like a piece of cinema itself has died. It really has, especially I would say, like Sidney Pollack was a very good director. More specifically, a a great uh, director of actors, right? Um, and a pretty good actor himself, actually. I would say, yeah. But um, 
But for the most part, like, you know, his a lot of his movies are solid. They're very good. But, like, for somebody, I'd say people, especially, like, our age, you know, maybe in their 30s, you know, and mid-20s, like, Stan Winston made a huge contribution to to film. I mean, he really, yeah. he revolutionized, like, almost, like, probably four or five times over, he revolutionized film special effects. Uh-huh. I mean, if you look at every every special effects milestone of like the last 25 years, he's probably behind it in some way. Right. From like American world from London yeah. and then up to Terminator two and Jurassic park. And yeah. I up mean, to him, he worked on Iron Man. Yeah. And it's just, and he's a guy who, and quite honestly, like I never quite understood what specifically he did because he seemed to like when I, like when I watch uh, Jura- like special features on Jurassic Park, you know Spielberg says it's like so. You know, I just turned to Stan Winston. And I'm like, but what did he do? And it just <laughs> se- he just seemed to be like, you know, like a modern Ray Harryhausen. He was just kind of this godlike guy who's just like, like he can just whip up any kind of special effect you need. Yeah. Because um, I, I think he specifically worked with like practical uh, effects. Was that yeah? Was that basically? And what that's he what did? I mean when I talk about about a piece of cinema dying is is that. You know, I mean, look at uh, uh, look at the the sort of the zombie monsters or whatever in I Am Legend, which yeah. are completely motion capture and fake looking and rubbery, like fake rubbery. You know, they look right. like just globs of snot with faces on the screen. Yeah, and then look at the fucking Predator. You oh know? yeah. I mean, twenty years later, and all our technology can't produce something one tenth as terrifying as the fucking Predator. Yeah, there's really, and what's yeah, what's great about Predator is. His design is frightening through and through. Like, he's scary, and then he takes the mask off, and he's even scarier. You're yeah. like, wow, they actually did up the ante quite a bit yeah. um, with those mandibles. But, um, but yeah, it's, you know, I mean, we talked about this a long time ago when we talked about special effects. Is it like, I mean, like directors or special effects guys who really believe in the power of a practical effect. I mean, they're few and far between these days and Stan Winston was probably the champion of it. I mean, and it really, it's, it's true. I mean, I've said it before. He, he wasn't behind jaws, but you know, the shark in jaws, it may look fake, but I'm, you know, my pounding heart is absolutely real. I mean, it's, you know, there's something to be said for actual interaction. I mean, when that T-Rex head is right by Sam Neill, uh-huh. It's right there. It's actually there, and it's really scary. Yeah. So yeah, he will be missed, and uh, and we uh, we at Battleship Pretension uh, salute him. Salute him, indeed. Um, okay. Uh, something else I want to get to before we uh, not not as serious matter, but the uh, the La- the uh, Los Angeles Film Festival is going on right now, and uh, it's the the motto this year for the festival is. The audience is king. <laughs> what do you th- what do you think of that? I okay. Well, it's a nice sentiment. I understand what they're trying to go for. It's kind of like the customer is always right. But as you and I have discussed, customers are fucking morons yeah. a lot of the time, yeah. and the audience eh, pandering to them is usually the worst thing you can do. Exactly. Uh, you know, I feel like the directors and writers. I'd say mostly directors should be king. No. You know, this, the film is the film. Is king. Yeah, indeed, it, yes. So it's even bigger than the than its maker, yes. Yeah. Film is king. The and audience is king seems like it should be like like uh, Disney's logo or something. Exactly. Like, not the, <laughs> well, not a, a film festival. Yeah, it's, uh, yeah, I mean, it almost seems like it should be the, uh, 
the motto of a movie theater chain or something like yeah. that. But uh, not a uh, artistic film festival. But you know what? I mean, it doesn't. If you look at their uh, at the the program, the Los Angeles Film Festival this year, it's very interesting, very good. Yeah. Uh, obviously, it's just the motto is stupid, but it's not really, you know, feeding the choices. Uh, right. Right. Speaking of the good choices, I went uh, on Friday night and saw they're doing a uh, series. The Los Angeles Film Festival is doing a, a series called Shaw Sensations, okay. where, where they're showing some. Uh, some of the Shaw Brothers movies, the, okay. the classic sort of uh, kung fu studio from the, I guess, 70s mostly. Uh, I went and saw uh, Intimate Confessions of a Chinese Courtesan, uh, which is fucking amazing. Uh, it, has, it has kung fu. All right. It has, it has big swords All right. with the kung fu. Yeah. Uh, it's got prostitution. Oh, my gosh. And it's got lesbianism. Oh, my gosh. And... In the, in the final battle sequence, it has all those things pretty much at once. Oh, that's pretty awesome, I think, David. <laughs> yeah, uh, here's here's what's not awesome. A couple things about this. I, I had a lot of fun watching it, but a couple things about the screening that are not awesome. First off, uh, there were a lot of people, a lot of most of the audience, sort of laughing ironically at what was happening on the screen. All right. And I think, I mean, maybe it's because. Uh, I don't know, maybe it's because they're uh, subconsciously racist white hipsters and yeah. they see the the Chinese people on the screen and and, and they think it's uh, there's something there's something campy or silly about the the Chinese people. And also uh, there's of course the fact that it's made nineteen seventy two and it's very much of its time, you know. Right. Like like there's one sequence in particular in which there's a lot of slow motion is used and a lot of freeze frame. Yeah. And these techniques got a lot of laughs from the audience. But the fact it it's a rape scene. It it's not something that should be laughed at just because it, you have yeah. something to say, clearly. We, we Now we've we've talked about this before and about like people giving a very like a knowing laugh yeah. like it is a conscious choice yeah. now like when, when i saw jaws a few weeks uh-huh. ago there was that laugh of recognition but here's what i'll say as opposed to what you're talking about that laugh at the very least at least it was appreciative you know what right. i mean they would laugh be like this is this part's pretty awesome everybody yeah and it's like okay i can like it's still annoying at least get, it's, it's still annoying but i can at least get on board with you know the in spirit, they're, yeah, they're, they like the film. This, I just that mocking kind of that, just the VH1 mentality of yeah. just like looking back and taking something that at the time, you know, I'm sure that was probably the most cutting edge way to film a rape scene, you know. And, and it's the thing is, if you put yourself in the mind, uh, you know, in in the context, it's a well done scene. Yeah. You know, it's not. It's not bad. Bad is bad, whether it's dated or not. Right. You know, this is this is good. It's it's not the type of technique that would be used today. Yeah. And, and that's that's the point of view the audience is coming from. It's like, look at the way they did things back then. You know, it's a good thing we have perfected cinema now. Oh, and the yeah. techniques and styles that we use now will be the ones that we use for the end of time. And no one will ever look at the movies of 2008 and laugh at their stylistic choices and say, aren't those dated? Aren't those so 2008? Because, of course, everything's perfect now. Oh, of course, absolutely. Like, uh, you know, when somebody watches uh, Bonnie and Clyde or The French Connection and sees that the blood is way too red, uh-huh. you know, they can take comfort in the fact, like, oh, I'm glad I watched movies in 2008 when uh, each human body apparently has, uh, like, 50 gallons of blood, <laughs> you know, but at least it's dark red like blood actually is. You yeah. know, it's just, you know, each generation has its own thing that 
in about 20 years, you'll look back and be like, oh my gosh. Like, I was thinking about Manhunter the other day. Right. And, and how music? much I absolutely love it, but I'm like, that, man. I mean, I'm, I'm sure at the time, audience was like, man, this music really captures the mood. Right. Now, I'm just like... You can almost like tell, the, like, what month in 1986 <laughs> that movie came out. <laughs> but, but that's the thing. I, I'll say this, you know, not to, not to pat myself on the back too much, but it's like, at the very least, like, I can look down on that music, but I'm not going to look down on the film for having it. You know right. what I mean? I think that might be... Although, a, that, is my, that is a problem with Michael Mann's. I mean, right. He wants to stay very relevant, and that's not, nothing necessarily wrong with that, but... And that's Sometimes. why he digs up a fourth-tier new metal band called Nonpoint to do the Miami Vice <laughs> theme. I remember hearing about Nonpoint like they were playing like the third stage at Ozfest in 1999, <laughs> you know? And to Michael Mann, they are on the cutting edge. Uh, the other thing about the screening the other night that I wanted to talk about, and I'll talk briefly about this. Tyler, I know you don't go to festival screenings as often as I do and, 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 and you know, like special event screenings and stuff like that, but often you will have... Uh, essentially like a, a speaker introducing the film. Okay. It's usually not announced that there's going to be a speaker. And there's also usually some sort of program or pamphlet or literature okay. that you can read. Uh, maybe I'm just not a very good film nerd, but it bugs the shit out of me. That I'm sitting in the movie theater, and then like they dim the lights a little bit, you know, or they turn like the, the house music down, you know, and I'm like, all right, it's the, not, uh, the movie's going to start. And then some... Dipshit comes up and talks for twenty minutes, but it's not some guy associated with films. It's not like a producer. Or a no, writer certainly or if it's the filmmaker, you know, I've seen, I, yeah, I, I've seen that before, uh, and that's 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 awesome. That's that's yeah. fun to do. Um, but this is just usually uh, a film scholar who's very knowledgeable about the the film you're going to see or the director of the yeah. film you're going to see, which is another problem that often comes up. Uh, it's usually them sort of being a little bit uh, uh, that they, they love because they're such. Fans of this particular, like I went to see um, at the Hammer Museum, the Billy, the Billy Wilder Theater at the Hammer Museum. That's the Billy Wilder Theater at the Hammer Museum. At the Hammer Museum. Museum. There um, we go. And to, to see, uh, I went a couple, to see a couple of, of films. They were doing a series a couple of months ago on uh, Manuel de Oliveira, okay. the, the noted Portuguese filmmaker, coming of course from the long tradition of Portuguese filmmaking <laughs> that we all know and celebrate. Uh, no, nah, I'm a jerk. I'm sure there's great Portuguese filmmakers. I Sorry, just only know the listener one. in Portugal. Um, <laughs> the, yeah, I guess if you take the percentage of people in the world who listen to Battleship Pretension and the number of people that there are in Portugal, we're lucky if there's one. I know because there's there's like more, more people went to my high school. I think that live in Portugal. All right, here's the thing. I I'm trying to. Force myself to not talk directly to listeners and ask them for things. But uh, if you live in Portugal, I want you to email me and let me know because I will be so excited. <laughs> okay. Um, so anyway, uh, this 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 screening. Oh yes. yeah. Then this guy was uh, a, a Manuel de Oliveira scholar. Yeah. And um, uh, in his studies, he had gotten to know the filmmaker, and so there All was right. a lot of in his like talk. There was a lot of the last time I saw Manuel. You know, it, right. it's just like. You know, oh, here's the, the bathroom's thing. down it's... the hall. Go rub one out down there. I don't need to see you jerk <laughs> off on the stage. <laughs> While looking at your, you know, at a framed picture of you with your arm around Manuel. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, it's kind of like... The same it's... thing happened uh, like a year ago. I went to Red Cat to see a series of uh, experimental films by the, the late Mark Lepore. And 
then then it's even like worse. It seems like even more egregious, like because the bragging that I know this dead guy, and he hadn't even yeah. been dead that long at that point. It's kind of like the the Peter Bogdanovich mentality, where like he will name drop Orson Welles quite a bit. Oh, did he know Orson Welles? Apparently so. Ha! Huh. But here's the thing: we mock him, but at the very least, like he was a perfectly good filmmaker on his own as right. well. Like, and he was actually like friends with Orson Welles. It's not like he interviewed him a couple of times for a, a public uh, obscure publication right. and can say, "Yes, I knew Orson." Like they actually were good friends. Yeah, but like. Uh, well, we should get started. Yes, absolutely. We've got a lot to get to. Oh, I wanted to say one more thing. Uh, we got another complaint, this time directly from a friend of mine, that oh, okay. we are not, are not pretentious enough. Who is this friend? Well, I, I'm not going to say, but I will say to, to this friend, okay. uh, why don't you take uh, Manuel de Oliveira and Mark Lepore and put them in your pipe and smoke them, Sean. There you go. And listen to this. Let's try this. I'm going to try and spin this. I recently saw The Incredible Hulk, and... Uh, and I, I thought it was, I thought it was pretty good. But I saw it, you know, and I was able to see a lot of really deep themes and, uh, and you know, um, uh, a nice allegory to like, you know, uh, American foreign policy uh-huh. and that sort of thing. Now, other people have seen it as well, but I definitely, uh, I, I absolutely saw it without even thinking very much about it. All right, so that's what I bring to the Incredible Hulk. All right, so take that. Jerk. I don't see these obscure films that, uh, that David sees. But <laughs> I bring the mentality to movies that probably don't have that. So I like to think that you and I both have this thing going, even though I did go see The Incredible Hulk, yes. Yeah. You know, I, I have almost no interest in seeing The Incredible Hulk, yeah. but I like both the Transporter movies, which uh, Louis Leterrier made. Yeah. Uh, I tell you, Incredible Hulk, not bad. I mean, it's, okay. you know, and it does have that allegory, and I'm not even stretching that far when I, uh, when I talk yeah, about it. I'm sure. So, um, all right, but let's, uh, oh, uh, special thanks to the Sklars for being on the show. That was really uh, a lot of fun. We really, and we, don't worry, everybody. Th- that's going to be the last guest episode we have for a while. I'm sure you. Yeah, we had to cram a bunch in because yeah. we had to take some weeks off and we had some stocked up. And... Right. So um, we had to kind of. You know, kind of had to burn some off, but now you don't have to stop talking while I cough. I'm sorry. In fact, it's probably better if you talk. Yeah, over that's it. a good call. I just I like it's it's a weird version of politeness, David. Um, <laughs> where uh, <laughs> I'm dumb, um, but yeah, uh, we probably won't have a guest episode for for a while now. Yeah, but we might have a big one coming up. I'm not going to give any details because right. it's still in the works. All right, um, let's get going. All right. Now, uh, I'll introduce this topic. By all means. Tyler is very interested in, in, in tracking our subscribership. Uh, and, but more than just like checking on the numbers, which of course I do too, he, he, he tends to research like which, I, which episodes get the biggest numbers, what are the trends in there. And Tyler has discovered that like all nerds, you guys, Battleship Retention fans... Like lists. That's right. And apparently you hate George C. Scott. But, um... <laughs> uh, so we are going to begin... This is week one of uh, two weeks of pandering. <laughs> is it pandering? I mean, frankly, like... First off, I like making lists. Yeah, who doesn't? You know, and secondly, like, you know, it just... It's fun. It, it is fun just, you know, hearing what somebody that you, you know, whose taste you agree with 
you know, seeing what they think and just comparing notes and that kind of thing. Okay, so here's what we're gonna do. Uh, this week, Tyler and I present uh, our respective top five favorite uh, male actors. Male actors, that's correct. Yeah, because I've just we're just, we're not we're not doing actor actress because I think that's a little outdated. You right. know, like comedian comedian. Yeah. No one does that anymore unless they're, you know, a Jerry Lewis acolyte or something. Uh, so do you it, say female? Uh, female do you say actor. Female waiter. I don't have uh, much attendant, uh, much attendant, much, uh, I don't know what's what I'm looking for. I, I don't know. <laughs> I, I saw your face just explode and yeah. I couldn't figure it out. I, 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 cause I'm thinking of flight attendant is what I was thinking of. Okay. I was stewardess? Flight. Steward and stewardess? Right, but, but you say flight attendant now. So I'm thinking, I was trying to think, I was trying to say a sentence while also thinking of what the waiter waitress version of flight attendant would be. Server, I think. Server, is, okay, that's not is bad. Is actually. I think that's what they use now. Yeah. Yeah, I, I should know that actually because my sister yeah. was a server at the Outback Steakhouse. That's right. It's a uh, that's a restaurant in Missouri. That it, there's just the one in yeah, Cape Girardeau, it's a, Missouri. It's a, <laughs> it's, a, <laughs> it's a nice little boutique uh, steakhouse. It's um, owned by a nice Australian family. <laughs> it's actually owned by Paul Hogan's family. <laughs> um, yeah, I was at a tangent already. I was at an airport, like at a Chili's. Paul Hogan was there. No, oh. but there was a sign that says hostess will seat you, uh-huh. you know, or something like that. And I was like, oh, on the other side, it must say, you know, host will seat you on the other side, completely blank. <laughs> so I wasn't really sure. Like, do they just hire women for this position? I think traditionally, I mean, I don't know if it's uh, on the books anywhere, but it seems like restaurants always have women as hostesses. Yeah. I mean, a male hostess would be uh, unorthodox. Yeah. I don't know. I don't like it, listeners. All right. Male actors. So here okay, we go. Okay, uh, you go first. Who's your number five? My number five, we will not talk about him in depth here. Or um, really at all. Or really at all. In fact, I will say his name, and then we will move on. Uh, his name is Frederick March. So stay tuned. We'll get to him in a few episodes. Yeah. Uh, so my number five. Yeah. Uh, and heterosexuality be damned. <laughs> my number five is Denzel. Mm-mm-mm. <laughs> Um, I'm a huge fan. Yeah, and, uh, you know, uh, we we talked about him very briefly uh, with Jimmy Pardo. And, uh, and yeah, I, I I like him a lot as well. He's a guy who can really... He can be in a movie that I don't care for, like Remember the Titans. And uh-huh. he can really sell it. Like, as much as I don't care for Remember the Titans and Will Patton and all that kind of thing, he's great in it. You know, he always sells it, no matter how... he. And I'll say this... He would be a great politician because he can take the cheesiest sounding lines. Like, such as, King Kong ain't got nothing on me? King Kong ain't got nothing on me. You know, he can take over-the-top lines. He can take cheesy, inspirational lines. And I buy them every time. Every time, yeah. <coughs> I probably first saw him in in Glory. Right. Uh, um, which he's very good in and everything. Yeah. Uh, but I think... The first uh, film that really made me sort of sit up and take notice of him, and I was pretty young when I saw it. I mean, it came out when I was like 11, but I, I yeah. probably saw it when I was uh, 14 or 15, is, is Philadelphia. Philadelphia, yeah. Because <laughs> uh, there's, I mean, that's, he, you know, he's a movie star uh, right. in, uh, in addition to being actor, an actor. And, and the number one on my list, as we'll get to, is also uh, definitely a movie star. Right. Um, but... Uh, his 
he he almost turns that aspect off in Philadelphia. Like that's a really charactery performance. It's a character. I mean, it always is with him. He always brings yes. character to it, but it really he 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 doesn't. I mean, he doesn't. Uh, he doesn't steal the limelight from from Tom Hanks at no. all. Uh, but he doesn't, you know, cower in his presence either. He uh, it's he seems like a, a real a fully realized character. I mean, it's just, and that's that goes. I mean, it, it's a fantastically written character, well directed and and brilliantly acted because. Everything about him, see, like Tom Hanks's character, just who, not just because he's gay and not just because he's dying of AIDS, and not, but you know, because of like his love of opera, like he's he's given like these very kind of a kind of grand moments, uh-huh. and he's great with them. I mean, he doesn't uh, you know overplay them or anything, but you know, it's kind of a I would say, for lack of a better word, a showier uh, type of character. Whereas Denzel Washington's character seems like the type of guy you would actually meet on the street, right down to his reactions. Like him in that in that drugstore scene uh-huh. where the guy thinks he is gay. I mean, that's that particular moment. He really, when you're an actor and you're given something dicky like that to do, you know, or just where your character's kind of an asshole, you can. There's a way to play it where like. You're playing it knowing you're doing the wrong thing in the moment. Uh-huh. He does. It's kind of a little safety net that you can kind of give yourself. Right. He doesn't do that. He, the this you know the guilt comes afterwards. But in the moment, he just does not want to be thought of as gay. Yeah. You know, and he commits to that fully. And that is probably one of I would say that's one of Denzel Washington's best acting moments of his career. That yeah. scene. And that's I mean that. That's that, that 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 movie is high in the running for his best performance. I'd say I would so. Say. Yeah, and I would you know even uh, Tom Hanks, who is a very good actor, yeah, uh, has said that ever since Philadelphia, he he steals from Denzel Washington every day. Like he 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 learned a lot. Yeah. Um, and then um, shortly after Philadelphia, yeah, uh, comes a completely different movie, but one that's almost as great: Crimson yeah. Tide. Crimson Tide has. As far as like just really solid like suspense movies, I mean you could you could classify it in a lot of different ways: suspense, uh, action, war. I mean you could call it a lot of different things, but like not enough people talk about it as just a really great mainstream movie. You know where yeah. most of the not even most I'd say the vast majority of the tension comes from just two very dynamic actors and. More than anything, a philosophical debate. Yeah, you know, and and it's and it's a testament to both him and Gene Hackman that you can see both sides. You know. Yeah. And and he is and Denzel Washington Denzel Denzel is uh, he's given you know he's given lines that are a little in the hands of a lesser actor. Him saying like, "If I'm wrong, then we're at war. God save us all." Uh-huh. It's like. In the hands of an actor who's not willing to commit, I'd say that's that's the big thing for him, and I mention it all the time, is the level of commitment to a line like that. Also, the film is honed by noted master of subtlety, Tony Scott. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's right. Um, yeah, and uh, yeah, he's great in Crimson Tide, and it's just an underrated movie in general, I think. And it's, uh, it's the kind of big, almost, you know, it's a big blockbuster type of movie. It's it the kind is. of movie that we don't, too many of our blockbuster movies uh, hinge on uh, a high concept or a special effect, you yeah. know. And I guess Crimson Tide is 
a high concept in, yeah. in a way, but it's it's a high concept that could very conceivably happen. Yeah, know? and it's 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 a movie that's held up completely by performance and character, right? And it's a it's a mainstream blockbuster that's held up by that, and that's it's becoming more and more rare. Yeah, it really is. But what's what's interesting is like if you look at you know mainstream blockbusters that are you know really hinge on you know strong lead performances he's often in them like if you look at like american gangster or something like that like that's a big movie and he's yeah front, but that movie's front not and center. not really nearly as good no uh, it's I, actually I would... not very it's not it's i didn't like i didn't like it yeah it has its moments <laughs> but it is a it's a mainstream big you know crime drama and all that and there he is like it's weird he's i would say seldom are movie stars there's plenty of movie stars out there that are that it's like yeah they're good actors they're decent you know yeah denzel washington managed to be a really great actor who is also a bona fide movie star yeah um we shouldn't spend too long on any one person but i mean we mentioned training day briefly and that's uh, a great performance, and yeah. it was almost like a a rediscovering of him for me. You know, yeah. like I had taken him for granted. Um, but I want to, uh, and I'm personally a big fan of Man on Fire, but right. that's not what this episode is about. Yeah, uh, where I think we talked about Man on Fire way back in episode number one, probably. Um, uh, but I want to briefly mention the Manchurian Candidate. Oh yeah, because that's another uh, like Philadelphia, and probably even more so. It's not a movie starish kind of performance. Like he's no. Uh, his behavior could turn off an audience in that movie, and and that's why I like the performance so much, is because it's so real. Yeah, I mean, he has another one of his great moments when he's walking down the street. I mean, at this point, I mean, it's it's probably a solid hour, fifteen minutes into the film, uh-huh. and at this point, he's really paranoid and rightfully so, of course. Yeah. And I mean, when he's walking down the street and somebody accidentally knocks these papers out of his hand, and he just flips out on him. You know, you. I mean, we live in L.A. We both lived in Chicago. You lived in St. Louis. I mean, there were crazy people walking yeah. around on a city street, and they would flip out for no reason. I was driving in Venice, and a shirt uh, recently, and a shirtless man uh, felt. I guess felt that I was driving too close to him, even though he was standing uh, in the street and hit the back of my truck as I was driving by, like with his hand. <laughs> and so it's like, and you're so inclined to just be like, those people are crazy. But then when you see. The backstory behind that, I mean, that scene really has a, a great deal of power, and he sells it. He seems like one of those guys. All right. Number four for Tyler. <laughs> for Tyler. It's uh, it's Ben Kingsley. Oh, I like him. All right. Me too. So are you rushing out to see The Love Guru then? Uh, not so much. I'm, I'm interested in seeing The Wackness to a degree. It's I could a terrible see being, title. I know. I think I've said that on the show before, but I hate the title. It's a bad title, and everything about it. Oh, you know what's a worse title? What's that? That was also a Sundance movie, which get played again at, at Cannes. Uh, it's called "What Just Happened." You heard about? Uh, I think no, Robert De Niro's that? in it. I think Robert De Niro's in it. I can't remember, but that is just the worst. It's worse than the Wackness. It's the worst movie title. I hate it. What just happened? Yeah. That, is it a question? Yes. Okay. It's a question. What just happened? It's, what just happened? All right. It's, it seems like a, like a... What if it was a statement? Or like the end of a statement? Like, and that's what just happened. That would probably be better, but it's a question. Okay. It, doesn't it sound like a, like a catchphrase that a mad TV character would have or something? 
um, well, Matt Bronger recently became a cast member on Mad TV. Maybe we'll uh, shoot it to him. Yeah. Um, I, I don't know him. What? I don't know him. No, but, uh, you know, we'll, okay. uh, you know, he's on the boards. <laughs> um, but, <laughs> but the... Uh, <laughs> you mean he's doing theater? He's treading the boards? <laughs> exactly. Um, but, uh, huh. Ben Kingsley we're talking about. Ben Kingsley, that's right. Sorry, I was still on what just happened. Um, yeah, Ben Kingsley's a, a great actor. He's very, you know, he's kind of a, I don't like when people use this term, but he really is a chameleon. He can, he can play uh, several diff- different nationalities. He can do a like, lot of he's different He's like, like an Anthony Quinn. He's like an Anthony Quinn. He's like, I'd say also like a John Turturro, where he looks like he could be kind of from several different places. <laughs> um, but what's more than that, because all that is really just surface stuff. Mm-hmm. But he can really – he can somehow find the emotional core of, it would appear at this point, any character. I mean, he can play Gandhi, which is a, a pretty good film, certainly not great, with a tremendous performance in the middle of it. Um, you know, he can play a character as, as quiet and gentle and subdued as that. And then he can turn around and be in um, – you know, sexy beast mm-hmm. where he plays this volatile bully. And that's the best way to describe him. I mean, he's, he's a little scary. He's ferocious, but he, more than anything, he's just kind of pathetic. Yeah. You know, I mean, and you really don't get, he's like, uh, he's like chopper only. There's no chance to really laugh at him. Right. Right. I mean, it's just, and he's just, like, and he seems to really understand that character. He gives the character moments of vulnerability. And, of course, because that character is who he is, the vulnerability is often followed immediately with uh, horrible violence of some kind. Uh-huh. Um, but, uh, you know, and I remember when I – there, you know, everybody likes seeing overacting. Everybody likes seeing cartoonish acting, even if we won't Who, who is it. this everybody? Well, like, for example – me, it's fun to watch, even okay. if it's ridiculous. And even if intellectually, I don't care for it. You know what I mean? But it's still fun to watch, and then... I, I, I hate to get on a tangent, but I don't know that it is always fun to watch. I mean, look at look at 300. That was not fun okay, that's, to watch that's for true. me. I mean, it's fun when it's called for, like uh, Matthew McConaughey and Rain of Fire, which I've okay, talked about there before. You go. Like, that's, there you go. That's a, that's a great bit of scenery right. chewing. See, and like, I, something like that. Okay, fair enough. I mean, I guess more specifically, a like a strong character that you can do a lot with the characters in 300 are only so strong. Um, <laughs> oh no, they're very strong. They're very Can't strong you tell they're right yeah. looking at their abs? They're from Sparta. <laughs> anyway. So, um, sorry, everybody. Um, <laughs> but I'm sorry. I keep wanting to move on. Um, but like, you're talking about overacting, overacting, but like, I think just, you were going towards house of sand and fog. Well, I was going. To, I was going to stick with Sexy Beast when I oh, okay. everything that I had heard about that character seemed like the type of character that's like, oh, he's going to be great. He's going to be over the top. He's going to be just oh, wonderful. I, uh-huh. I'm going to love watching Ben Kingsley just chew the scenery, and he is. The character is over the top, but he doesn't play him as over the top. Right. He plays him as a real human being. You know, and he's all the more terrifying for it. All the more, absolutely, and uh, and it's a great performance. But I would say probably his best is in House of Sand and Fog. Where, you think that's his best performance? I don't know. I'd say it's between that and Sexy Beast. Yeah, that's, uh, um, it's, I would probably go with Sexy Beast on that. But he is great. In but again, I have not seen The Love Guru. It, that, yeah, fair enough. Yes. And I haven't seen Blood Rain. You know, so maybe, oh, you know what? Maybe I shouldn't talk about this. <laughs> but um, 
But uh, in House of Sand and Fog, it's just it's an interesting combination of uh, traits. Uh, he plays a character that is just very controlled emotionally. I mean, he does not he does not let his he does not betray his own emotions very often. Mm-hmm. He's a military man, and he just he's will he will do whatever he needs to do, you know, to take care of his family or at least what he thinks takes care of them and all that sort of thing. Um, however. There's a moment there at the end when all of that is stripped away from him, and he realizes that what he thought was important is not actually as important as he thought it was. And so he has this moment where he is shouting to the heavens, and I, you know, speaking of, you know, a potential for overacting. Yeah, this is what I thought you were going for. Right. I mean, you know, there's a moment where he's, you know, screaming to God to spare his son. You know, he's covered in his son's blood. I mean, everything about it is operatic. You know what uh-huh. I mean? And, and he is yelling, you know, and some people would say that simply by virtue of the fact that he's not whispering it, which would have been an interesting way to play that scene. Uh-huh. Um, but, you know, uh, just because somebody is yelling does not necessarily mean they're overacting. I mean, that character was undergoing tremendous anguish Mix that with the fact that he's that he bottles everything up inside anyway, and he's and he has tremendous guilt. I buy it. I absolutely buy that. In that moment, he would scream out in emotional agony, and uh, and it's just a and it just that moment feels so real. Every every moment of that character feels real to me. Even yeah, even though it, the movie itself. I, mean, I like the movie, but it doesn't take place in the reality that I live in. No, it takes place in a heightened reality where yeah. characters, motivations... I mean, you know, I, I mentioned operatic. It is a little operatic. Yeah. but uh, Or it's an inherent tragedy, I guess you could say. Uh-huh. But uh, but that doesn't lessen the power of his performance uh, at all. So, David, your turn. Moving on. Number four for me. Um, and I don't think you've seen many of his films, uh, I think I've Tyler. only seen one. This is sad. Uh, it's Tony Lung. Tony Lung. Uh, the one film that you have seen, uh, we recently discussed in the show. Right. That's he, uh, Zhang Yimou's Hero. That's right. Uh, and that's that's a great one. I mean, it's if I were going to if I were going to tell you that you could only see two movies with Tony Lung in it, that would be one of them. Okay. What would the other one be? In the Mood for Love. In the Mood for Love. But I okay. want to briefly talk about Hero. Uh, okay. I mean, just mention what we said before that his uh, his character Broken Sword is yeah. Uh, he's he's the heart of the film, you know, and he, absolutely in a way that you don't really realize until the end. That's part of the the beauty of the structure of that film. But yeah. uh, uh, and um, he's got the uh, he's got the chops to play both I mean, to play all the different aspects. Throughout the film, you think that character is different things, right. you know, and and he's he's able to play all of them because right. uh, he's got he has the ability to to appear like a, uh, I mean I, I'm not sure what the word is that I'm looking for, but a sort of uh, uh, cold and and calculated type of guy, you yeah. know, he he can play that kind of character, but he can also be uh, incredibly soulful. Yeah, uh, and he can he can switch back and forth as as he as he does in, in a couple of movies. Um, uh, I want to just real quickly I talk about. Um, I think I, I first saw him in Chunking Express, uh, the Wong Kar Wai film, mm-hmm. who also directed uh, In the Mood for Love. He's also I think in on Wong Kar Wai's Ashes of Time, which I haven't seen. Um, uh, but uh, uh, he's also in Hard Boiled, which I, I know you haven't seen, Tyler, and I don't right. know if you would like, but. Uh, you should anyone who is interested, who maybe doesn't know 
that John Woo was once uh, good at something. What the hell are you talking about? I've seen Wind Talkers. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I mean, Hard Boiled is it's not even John Woo's best film. That's clearly the killer. Uh, there's no debate to be had about that. Okay. Uh, but uh, Hard Boiled's a lot of fun. It's a big, violent movie with uh, in, and um, and Tony Lung plays the sort of he plays like second second banana to to Chow Yun Fat. Um, but uh, then there's In the Mood for Love. Okay. Which is one of the greatest films ever made in history. Okay. Uh, Wong Kar Wai is, of course, the the director. Um, and uh, you you get to see, obviously, a John Woo film is not a subtle film. Right. Um, in the Mood for Love is one of the most subtle films ever made. Because uh, the the story is essentially, it's, well, given the, the, uh, the society in which these characters live and the time in which they live is a very... It's it's very reserved, and so uh, subtlety is almost the only way to con- to to accurately portray uh, the era. Um, but the the story of the film is essentially uh, Tony Lung and Maggie Chung play uh, two people who discovered that their respective spouses are having an affair, uh, and and so they strike up uh, a, a friendship that could. They they could almost become surrogate spouses to one another, but the uh, the movie doesn't make any. It, it doesn't place them in either category, friends or lovers. It it uh, it, it leaves it up to you and up to the characters. To and, categorize it either way would be to almost cheapen it. It right. sounds like okay. Yeah, and um, it's highly recommended to anyone who hasn't seen it. Uh, it's one of the greatest films ever made. Okay. Uh, before we move on, he was also in. If anyone is interested in, you know. You learn about John Woo. If anyone's interested in seeing The Departed, but without all that bloat that Martin Scorsese <laughs> brought to it, you should see In- Infernal Affairs, the movie it's based o- off of, in which Tony Lung plays the DiCaprio role. Okay, okay. Um, yeah, I still haven't seen it, and I I, uh, I really want to. I want to see In the Mood for Love, and I, I really want to see Infernal Affairs, although... Possibly a worse title than what just happened. <laughs> I remember that was a big problem you had with it, but... Um, Aren't there like three sequels to it now? Yeah, and he's in the he's there. There are, are at least are there prequels or anything. I don't know. I haven't seen any of them. Okay, he's also in Infernal Affairs three. He's not in the second one, but um, I I haven't seen them. Having seen The Departed and not seen Infernal Affairs, if the stories are as similar as I've heard, how the hell is he going to be in another one? Unless it unless it's a prequel, well, you'll have to, to watch Infernal Affairs, won't you? I guess I'm gonna have to. Um. Moving on. Moving on. To your number three. My number three. And I believe... Also my number three. It's our number three. Which will save us a bit of time. That's right. Uh, it's Alec Guinness. Alec Guinness. Who, uh... The first white guy on my list so far. Yeah. Why don't you freaking, you know... Why don't I go marry the ACLU? <laughs> you love it so much? Oh, my. Um, I was going to say, why don't you freaking, you know, show some loyalties... <laughs> But um, <laughs> but uh, I'm not Clint Eastwood. <laughs> Stay tuned. <laughs> um, no, the uh, yeah, Alec Guinness is remembered at this point among people our age as playing Obi Wan Kenobi, and he does a fine job of it. Oh sure, um, yeah. You know, it's a he really. What's interesting is the way the character is written. There's not a lot there, but he just by. 
Well, that's, that's the nature of the Star Wars films. Right. There's no, there's there are aren't really any real characters in those movies. They're all sort of archetypes. But it's something to be said that the way he delivers lines, you really, I mean, it hints at just like depths of emotion and experience yeah. in this character. And it might just be the fact that it's an old man, but I think just the way he's playing, he plays him as kind of. He's wise. He knows what needs to happen, but he's also experienced a lot in his life, and right. you know. And it's just, uh, it's a good performance, but by no means his best. And it's a shame that and so I would many say that people... up until uh, I went, I started college. Really, uh, that was pretty much what I knew Alan Guinness from. Uh, uh, I knew him from that. I knew him in uh, a Neil Murder Simon by thing Death. called Murder by Death right. as a blind butler, and then I that movie comes up too often. On this show, or well, that and the uh, the chief detective, the chief detective, yeah, yeah. The, the, both those movies come up way too often in the show, given the fact that I don't like either one of them. We need to we need to make a list of like movies that really, whether we like them or not, have no business being mentioned on this show. <laughs> Top of the list, probably Dirty Work, but then Chief Detective right underneath. Yeah. Um, but uh, in high school, I did see him in what I would say is his best performance, which is in uh, uh, the Bridge on the River Kwai. Yeah, and. Uh, you know, speaking of, I mean, we talked about Ben Kingsley having to do, having to play a wide range of uh, emotions in uh, House of Sand and Fog. Alec Guinness plays, he plays basically only one motivation, but he also has, he, he has an, it's his job to get us to root for him in spite of ourselves. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, that is a tough job. Like literally, I mean, David. You, okay, you you spell out for us what what he has to do. The broad strokes of the story. Right. Uh, he uh, is. Um, I can't remember what his rank is in the film. Colonel. Colonel. Okay. Uh, and he is the the senior most uh, British officer in a Japanese POW camp. Right. He's, he's during World War Two. He's been uh, he's been captured, and uh, I guess as a way of uh, keeping the workers busy or just getting cheap, uh, you know, free labor, the the Japanese uh, force the British soldiers to build a bridge. Right. Uh, and the bridge will, of course, help the Japanese army and and, right. and uh, who are the enemy. But at the same time, uh, Eleganus uh, decides that to build the bridge well will. Uh, shine will 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 speak very highly of the British soldiers. Right. So in he the takes future. right. Uh, so he takes it upon himself to build the best damn bridge that he can. Right. Like he sees, and what's interesting, like he sees that the Japanese engineers, it's a it, their design for the bridge is a poor design, structurally structurally unsound, and so like he decides, well, let's do something else here. And then like even some of his own officers come up, it's like, hey, all right, here's what we got. It's like we got men you know, who are goofing off. It's like, this bridge isn't going to be ready. And he goes, nope, it's going to be, it's going to be done. Like I want it done before it needs to be. And Uh it's going to, it's going to be built to last and people will know in the future it was built by British prisoners, you know? And it's just like, and it's one of those things where it's like, if this were, if it were a lesser actor and it was, you know, if the character was, uh, you know, not written as well, like, you just think he was crazy or obsessive or something like that. But it's a testament to him that you're like, you know what? 
I get it. I kind of see where he's coming from. Like, the, this war will be over eventually, and when it is, this bridge will still be standing, and people will people will remember not only who built it, but the circumstances under which they built yeah. it. You know, and they will think of them, think of him and his men as honorable. Yeah, and that, that, that sort of that sort of man, that sort of British man, especially, is something that director David Lean. Uh, was very good at. That's yes. that's kind of what he did, uh, especially with that that stretch of his career with uh, with it, with his epics, uh, right. like Lawrence Arabia and Doctor Zhivago, who is of course not British. Right. Uh, both movies in which Alec Guinness appears. Yeah. I've always really liked Alec Guinness and Doctor Zhivago. I mean, he's like only into the the beginning and end, but yeah, uh, he's. I mean, he's really, if nothing else, kind of a function of like uh, the framing device. Like yeah. he doesn't uh, play too much of a role in the story, but he is really. His character, that's the thing, even in a role as small as that, like, it's just like, I could watch an entire movie about this guy. <laughs> yeah. Like, he's so fascinating. But speaking of David Lean, uh, David Lean is essentially where <laughs> Alec Guinness got his start. Right. Uh, um, I guess the first uh, movie in which people really would have noticed him is is David Lean's uh, Great Expectations, 1946? Right. Oh, I don't remember. I don't remember either. Um, which is, again... Much like in the mood for love, one of the finest films ever made. It's really wonderful. Uh, and also for people who are used to the to, to, to seeing Alec Guinness as, in, as the uh, you know as Obi Wan Kenobi or or Colonel um, Nicholson, Colonel Nicholson, uh, or in Doctor Zhivago, in which he makes both those characters look like big jokers. <laughs> uh, <Yeah. laughs> you'll be surprised to find that Alec Guinness is really hilarious in, yeah. in Great Expectations. He's the funniest part of that movie. He's not in it very much. Yeah. Uh, it's really, I would say, a little more than a, than a cameo type of role, but uh, it's a laugh out loud. And in that role, he's very naturalistically funny. Like, he just yeah. seems like a funny guy that you know. Yeah. You know, but a guy that is very funny. Um, and uh, it is weird. I mean, like, when I think of Alec Guinness, I think of, like, an actor like Laurence Olivier or, like, a guy who just... Uh-huh is very serious about acting. Yeah. And then you see him in, you know, Great Expectations, like, oh, he can be funny. All right, that's cool. Then, fast forward a few years, and he's he's in all these uh, Ealing comedies, and all of a sudden, it changes your perspective of him completely. It literally, it's like Ben Kingsley being in The Love Guru, even though it's a terrible movie. But, like... You don't know that. Fair enough. <laughs> Touche, sir. Um... But uh, you no, know, that's a rule of mine. I will not pass judgment on a film I haven't seen. All right, let's go see it. No, okay. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but uh, you know where it's just like he was in the original Lady Killers, and for those who've only seen the the new one, he plays basically the Tom Hanks part, and he just plays him as this weird Vincent Price type character with <laughs> fake teeth and a long scarf and these crazy bulging eyes. And it's just like this very strange performance, and uh, and then in a movie called Kind Hearts and Coronets, he basically plays, I believe, eight characters, mm-hmm. some of them women, um, and and all of them die. Spo- <laughs> spoilers, uh, they all die in a different way. It's basically how dare you keep talking while I'm coughing? Oh, I'm sorry, um, but it's uh, yeah, it's. He's just he's hilarious, and then he's great in a movie called The Lavender Hill Mob. Uh, just almost all of the I, there's one Ealing comedy that for the life of me I can't remember the name of, but I haven't seen it. But I saw The Man in the White Suit, Lady Killers, 
Kind Hearts and Cornets and the Lavender Hill Mob, all four of them are at at the very least very good, but he is great in all of them. Yeah, there's um I'm I'm, I say it a lot. I've probably said it on the show before. My favorite quotes is something that Joss Whedon said in the Serenity commentary mm-hmm. about about the casting of Michael Hitchcock at the beginning of the film. Right. Uh, that he he cast Michael Hitchcock in the serious role because comedy is the hard one. Right. And it, yeah, if someone can do comedy, they can probably do drama very well. So yeah. Um, all right. So let's uh, let's, let's move on moving. to your number two. My number two is uh, is Gene Hackman. Well, we've already talked about Crimson Tide, so I guess we can move on. I guess we can. <laughs> Shut up. Um, but, uh, yeah, Gene Hackman is really, uh, you know, I mean, I, I talk about Ben Kingsley being able to do anything and, and play anything. Uh, Gene Hackman, he always brings a lot of himself to a role. He, I mean, I don't think I've ever seen him do anything where he has to do a specific kind of accent or anything uh-huh. like that. And he always he's kind of a gruff guy, and he always brings that kind of gruffness to his characters. He never seems like somebody who is insanely well-educated, you know what I mean? Uh-huh. And yet, he has played incredibly smart characters and well-educated characters. He's played heroes and villains, and, you know, he's played morons and, you know, geniuses. Like... And he, I, I believe him in every single one. And it's because, you know, it's kind of that, that I don't know what his formal training was or what his philosophy was, but it's kind of that Meisner, te- uh, Meisner technique where you kind of bring your, if you bring enough of yourself into a role, it will be, we will believe it simply because you're real uh-huh. and your instincts and your reactions will help make the character real. And so it's just crazy to think that the guy fr- who's the villain in Unforgiven, probably one of the best performances I've ever seen uh-huh. is also the fairly stupid producer in Get Shorty. Yeah, you know, and I and I believe him equally in both. Yeah, I mean, what he has no business playing that character in Get Shorty because, <laughs> like, the character is dumb. Like, who would ever think of Gene Hackman for that role? But he's <laughs> great in it. Yeah, you know, he's great as Royal Tenenbaum. He's great as Popeye Doyle in. Uh, uh, the French Connection. He really is just uh, an amazing actor, and I'd say probably, uh, probably his best performance. Uh, maybe not his best, but among his best is in the conversation where he does do yeah. something a little different. Uh, he plays a much quieter character um, who is just kind of nerdy, for lack of a better word, yeah. but just very complicated. Um, but at the same time, so he plays that, and then he plays. Then he turns around and plays Lex Luthor, yeah. and it's just. I don't know. And then he was in Young Frankenstein. Yeah. I just thought of that. Talk, speaking of a guy who can do comedy, you know, I mean, he's he's funny in Get Shorty and in Young Frankenstein. Yeah. And in Royal Tenenbaums. It, my reservations about that film aside, he's funny in it. He is. And, I mean, he just, he can make any, really any role his own. And, I mean, it's something to be said that he is able to do that. Uh, real quick before we move on, I, I will say that uh, there's a movie that is not very well known that he's in, and it's marvelous. The movie in general is good, and he's really good. It's called Night Moves. Okay. It's uh, night as in night and day. Okay? Night right. Moves. All right? Okay. Um, so let's move on. Number two for you, David. Number two for me. Uh, much like Tony Lung, there's not a lot. I mean, I've seen more movies with this guy than with Tony Lung, but there's just a few 
key ones that have really formed my great opinion of him. Okay. And this guy's much not a movie star type of guy. He's he's a character actor. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's David Morse. David Morse. Uh, and if I mean, if you look at his his resumes, as The Rock and The Negotiator, you know, Disturbia, Sixteen Blocks, The Green yeah. Mile, like sort of, uh, you know, not not super challenging films, right? Uh, but um, he's he's great in all of them, yeah. And um, uh, he's often the villain. He's often the villain, which is especially odd because he he's a big he's a large man, not uh-huh. like fat, but I mean he's tall and he's yeah. kind of imposing but aside from that he's very soft-spoken and he has this is gonna sound a little weird the gentlest eyes i've ever seen in my life yeah i mean and and but what i was gonna say is that yeah he's often plays a villainous role but there there are two movies that have cemented his status for me okay uh and he is not really the villain in either one of them right uh the first is dancer in the dark right um which is uh i, I mean that's uh, maybe we can do an episode on Lars von Trier someday because there's a lot to talk about there. Uh, whether or not, I, I don't even know how much you like him. Uh, I've only seen Dancer in the Dark. You didn't see Dogville? I thought you saw. No, it. I haven't seen Dogville. Dogville. I, I would like to know what you think of his films. Uh, I would like to know what I think of them too, quite frankly. Um, but uh, so yeah, he's great in that. And then there's one. Uh, this is uh, a film that did not see a very wide release, and a lot of people have still. Uh, sadly not heard of. I've been a, a champion of this film for like five years now. Yeah. Uh, it's uh, The Slaughter Rule. The Slaughter Rule. Um, it stars Ryan Gosling yeah. uh, before he, of course, hit it big with the United States of Leland. <laughs> uh, <laughs> and it, um, it also has uh, Amy Adams in it in a very, uh, very small role. Yeah, you, you would miss her if you weren't yeah, looking I don't, for her. Yeah, I don't remember. <laughs> She's... Basically, Ryan Gosling doesn't make the football team. Okay. There's the guy who's the captain of the football team. His girlfriend is Amy Adams. Oh, all right. She's in, like, one scene. Okay. Uh, and then Cleo Duvall is in it, of course. Of course. Everybody knows that Cleo Duvall is in the film. Oh, yeah. Uh, but It's the one thing everyone knows about it. That made me laugh. Um, <laughs> no, that's a little strange. <laughs> uh, but David Morse, again, he's not a villain in this role. No. But he's not a good guy either. He's Motors someone are not to be, 100% pure. Yeah, he's someone to be wary of, certainly. Yeah. But he's also someone that you have a lot of sympathy for. It's, that is a, it is probably one of the most complex characters I've seen in a long time. I mean, yeah. by virtue of how he's written and how he's performed, where it's just he really, like, he doesn't even know his motivations, I think. Yeah. Like, he may think is just like oh i'm just a father figure to this guy you know to this yeah. young guy yeah and and it's sort of he's basically he he exudes uh he's he's clearly aiming this character aiming for a certain type of type of manliness right but you could say at times it's sort of the greek kind of manliness <laughs> you know yes. uh, there are there are subtle advances made toward yeah. the ryan gosling character uh but uh you know I think even if if you were allowed, uh, and I'm not gonna, you know, I'm not gonna give any spoilers away as to whether or not this happens, but say he were allowed to follow through on his advances, yeah, uh, I still don't think that this character would consider himself gay. Uh, uh, no, I don't think so. It, it would still be part of this father, this weird father figure thing, and that's why it's it's really creepy. 
Creepy is the word, and I'm and but he, totally believable and sympathetic at the same time. That's that's the trick that he pulls off. Yeah, I mean, it's just with characters like this who are, I'm reluctant to to say the word predatory because that it's, it's kind of reductive. But like, you know, characters like Dylan Baker and Happiness, and like Kevin Bacon and the Woodsman, where like, you know, but he doesn't even have the self awareness of these characters. No, right? not at all. You know, which. You could say makes him more dangerous, but also more sympathetic. That yes. he is so kind of cut off from his own emotions and his own self awareness. And I think it's really a case of in this character, a case of Arrested Development. I, I, I yeah. think even though he's a fifty-year-old man or whatever, uh, he has probably never had a girlfriend. Yeah, um, a, a serious girlfriend at least. Um, yeah, uh, it, it, he, he's probably never. In in some ways, he's matured into adulthood, and yeah. in at least this one specific sexual way, he is very much not. And it makes you wonder, like, you know, I mean, it's a character that you just, you think back and you're like, what was this guy? Like, he is kind of a macho character, and it makes you wonder, like, is this something that he has put upon himself? Like, how did he grow up? Was he kind of a nerd, always looking to prove himself? Yeah. Because the machismo that he, you know, yeah. exhibits doesn't feel like just a natural thing. It feels like a definite choice he is making uh, to the point now that it's become his instinct, but it still is not something that just kind of came about naturally. Um, it's a really... It's a great movie in general. And that it's really the is, movie that... It's it's the one performance that has rocketed him so high on my list. Right. Although uh, and is, I recognize it, re- recommend, recommend it to anyone. Although and I is, recognize it when I see it. I recognize, oh, that's the slaughter rule. That's, I recognize that. That's David Morris in the slaughter rule. I, I got that. Um, uh, although he is really great in The Crossing Guard as well. I haven't seen it. Oh, my gosh. It is uh, basically, uh, for those who don't know, it's a Sean Penn-directed film with uh, Jack Nicholson as a guy who lost his daughter in a drunk driving accident where she was hit by a drunk driver, I believe. And uh, the drunk driver is played by David Morris, who has, after several years in prison, just gotten out. And Jack Nicholson has just been, in the, since his daughter died, basically drinking and seething and uh-huh. decides he wants to, you know, kill this man. Um, so, of course, it's uh, very lighthearted. It's exactly what you would expect. All you had to say is Sean Penn Sean directed Penn, and yeah. I knew it was lighthearted. Um, but David Morris really plays this character as you would expect a guy who clearly had no you know he didn't mean to do this but he takes responsibility for it but what's interesting is he doesn't go the obvious route with it his guilt stops after a certain point Uh like he is able to recognize that i did this awful thing i did not mean to it was an accident it's nothing i willfully did you know what i mean like he feels bad about what happened, but he does not necessarily torture himself over it, you know? Um, but he does recognize it. What he did was wrong. It's kind of this weird thing that kind of goes back and forth inside him, but, uh, he's a surprisingly, it's interesting because the movie shows that over the years, even in prison, he comes out as a much more well-adjusted character than Jack Nicholson is, yeah. and it's a really, it's a really good movie in general, and he's great in it. All right, we should move on. I would be okay. remiss if I didn't mention David Morse as George Washington in the John Adams miniseries because it's great. But let's move on. Yes, 
So my number one, David, and this is all not, right. This is probably not a big uh, surprise. I think I may have even mentioned it before, but my favorite actor of all time, bar none, is Robert Duvall. Um, he is an actor who really embodies a lot of what I like. He kind of has the Ben Kingsley thing where he can play. You know, he's played Adolf Eichmann, he's played Joseph Stalin, he's played a preacher, right. he played whatever the hell you call that in Apocalypse Now. Right. I mean, he just, he can do anything. And he also is a lot like Gene Hackman in the sense that he seems to, he's sort of a workman, like he, or like a Christopher Walken does the same thing. He'll take a role yeah. in a movie, whether it's good or bad, he'll, he'll take it and he will give it the same respect that he gives, Absolutely. you know, the Godfather or Apocalypse Now. Or I mean, I've, I've talked about him in... Uh, the Sixth Day, which is uh-huh. a ridiculous movie, and yet somehow, in the middle of it, like, if you were to take... You know who's in that movie? Tony Goldwyn. Tony Goldwyn, that's in- right. Inside joke. <laughs> um, but uh, if you were to take, like, all his scenes from The Sixth Day and edit, edit them all together to make, like, a short film, you'd have a very heart-wrenching film. Yeah. You know what I mean? <laughs> like, if you took out all the weird action-y stuff, then, like, you really have... A nice little character piece from him. And uh, that's the thing. You're absolutely right. He's been in a lot of crap, but he approaches it as if he was in The Apostle, you know? Yeah. Um, but, uh, and I tell you, it's just... So, and he's, speaking of The Apostle, so he's now directed two films, is that right? Two films, yes. Uh, both of them start with the letter A. That's right. So, by this logic, he's got... Uh, 52 more, or 50 more to make if he's making two of these. Exactly. Letters. He's got to pick up the pace. Um, and The Apostle was the first one, and I still find that movie amazing. Yeah, it, very much so, yes. Uh, the second one was Assassination Tango, which I was kind of disappointed with. Disappointed with. I still own it because it's it's fascinating. It's yeah. A we- it's, just a, it's a movie unlike almost anything I've seen before because it's just... I mean, Robert Duvall is, very, I'd say, famously uh, in love with the tango, so he made a movie about it. And I feel like it, his, his love of the tango and of Buenos Aires in general, yeah. that's where it takes place, right? I believe so. Uh, I, think it, it, I think it overpowers the film at points. I, I would say so, yes. I mean, when the, when the plot does kick in in the third act, you're like, oh, right, yes, okay, we're doing right. this again. Um, but again, we're talking about an actor, not a director. Right. And he's good in that. He's very good in Assassination Tango. Absolutely. And he just, you know, I, I will talk about. That's a great title, by the way. Assassination Tango. Yeah, yeah, we've talked about some bad titles. Wanna, Assassination Tango often. is a cool title. Um, but, you know, I would say probably his best performance is, uh, is The Apostle because there's an example of somebody who, I mean, just because you're playing a fire and brimstone preacher. Uh-huh. And I say fire and brimstone. He doesn't. The character doesn't talk about hell that much, but he's just that charismatic, gets really worked up kind of thing. But I absolutely believe him. I don't. I don't think that he's mocking this type of person. I don't think he's uh-huh. doing a caricature. He believes it, you know. And I mean that scene where he's alone in his room yelling at God. Yeah, I believe. Like I buy that he thinks he is talking to God. You know what I mean? Yeah, he thinks he has that kind of relationship. Right. You know, and is, speaking as a Christian, it's like we we can all talk to God and, and all that, but it just the way like he really But you get a sense of, of hubris. 
yeah. in it. But but again, like David Morrison Slaughter role, not self aware of of, no. his, of his hubris. No, and it's uh, but still, it's a, it's a character you sympathize with, and uh, I would so there's that. I would also say that. Uh, in the film Civil Action, and I'm sure I brought up this before as I was probably railing at length against uh, John Voight, but um, in a Civil Action, he plays uh, the opposing counsel, which is a, is always just a great character to play. You can always, you know, you can, it's something you can sink your teeth into, uh-huh. but if you play it right, like he does in a Civil Action or James Mason does in The Verdict, you just, you know, he realizes that just because my character represents a company that is for lack of a better word, evil, that doesn't mean I'm evil. It just means I'm yeah. doing my job, you know? And he just plays him as kind of a cold, cynical guy, but certainly not evil. He doesn't take any joy in what he's doing. He may take a joy in, like, the thrill of the legal process, yeah. but that's outside of the case. He's, uh, I don't care much for that movie, but right. he's, uh, he's got more life in him than everyone else in that movie combined, I yeah. think. And also, I hate to keep hammering this point about every actor, but he's funny in that movie. He is. He is. Yeah. Um, but I'll say this. Uh, a movie that... It actually, it wasn't a movie. It was a, a miniseries on AMC, I believe, called uh, Broken Trail. That oh, he, right. Uh, with, did uh, with uh, Thomas, Thomas Hayden, Hayden Church. Church. And uh, it's pretty good as far as... Did you know, uh, Walter Hill make it? I believe so, yes. Um, it's pretty good as far as, you know, uh, made-for-TV things are, uh-huh. uh, as, far, as far as they go. But... Uh, there is one moment in there that I, he's good throughout. I mean, it's the same kind of role he's played in, like, Open Range and Lonesome Dove. So he's not throwing any curveballs. But there is one moment where basically he and, and his group have been followed by these villains, you know, for miles and miles. And then he decides he's going to confront them. And so he's it's nighttime. He's sitting alone by a campfire. The bad guys come up. And he's just sitting there. And and they're like, hey, they're you know, and they're trying to act all innocent, like he, you know, like maybe he doesn't know they've been following him for miles, if not uh-huh. days. And um, and they're like, hey, uh, you know, can we uh, have some coffee? And he goes, he goes, oh, we're all out of coffee. And they're like, it's like, well, you know, we're pretty hungry. Uh, you know, do you have any uh, any supper? And he goes, oh, supper's over. And he just says it with just like. Robert Duvall can seem like the kindliest man in the world, <laughs> but if there's something we've learned from, for example, Network, yeah, where he does go over the top, admittedly, but such is the nature of that film, right? But like when he I, just the look of contempt in his eyes when he's like, "Oh, supper's over," like it's just uh-huh. like, "Oh my gosh, he's gonna kill all these men," you know? <laughs> and he he doesn't at the moment, but it's just he does he he can convey so much with such a small line, uh-huh. and because you've seen him be so pleasant and jovial. That when you see him turn, it makes him literally frightening to me. Yeah, um, it, it's a great performance, and it just in a in a I'd say a solid movie. Seek it out. But Robert Duvall, best actor. There we go. Something else you should seek out, and I haven't checked if this is on YouTube or not. But uh, <laughs> the thing I mentioned, The Godfather, briefly, which might be my favorite Robert Duvall performance. It is very solid. Um, yes, if only because I'm German Irish. So I always identified with <laughs> Tom Hagen. Um, I need to start referring to you as my Kraut friend more often. <laughs> um, but, uh, the, well, there's a great scene in The Godfather between Robert Duvall and Abe Vigoda. Abe Vigoda, yeah. And Conan O'Brien did a sketch with Robert Duvall and Abe Vigoda where they essentially play that scene out a little longer. Yeah. And it's hilarious. I, I don't know if it's on YouTube. NBC is sort of notoriously yeah. uh, dickheaded about that. But uh, 
But, but I, look for it. It's very, very funny. But I remember there was <laughs> there was one moment where, <laughs> where uh, you know, Duval uh, he says you want to go get some ice cream, and just the way Duval says lactose, and he's like, I'm lactose intolerant, <laughs> and, in, and of course he's like, I didn't know that, and it's just uh, oh, it's, it's pretty awesome. I, I'm gonna go and look for that because yeah. uh, I want to watch it again all of a sudden. Okay, that's my number one, David. My number one. Uh, as I mentioned before, it's a movie star and possibly the the biggest male movie star of all time. Uh, oh, Tyler, Tyler's thinking, but uh, I'm inclined I, to say there's two bigger ones. Okay, well, um, who are they? I'd say Cary Grant. I uh, disagree. I'm talking about movie stars, and yeah. I'd say probably Humphrey Bogart. Uh, I disagree. I think the biggest male movie star of all time is Jimmy Stewart. Jimmy Stewart. Yeah. Okay. Well, he's Jimmy. Don't get me wrong. He's wonderful. And he's, he's Jimmy. And he's Jimmy. We all know him. That is true. We lost Jimmy Stewart in 1997. Uh, I most agree. definitely. Even though uh, IMDb insists that his name is James, uh, it's it's Jimmy, and it should be uh, as long as people are uh, aware of movies. Yeah, I mean, it's you know, Cagney was the same way, but with Jimmy Stewart. You really called him Jimmy because it just it didn't make sense to call him James because he was like the guy next door. I yeah, mean, it's, it's such Jimmy. a standard thing to say. It's like, you're not James. Come on. Yeah. And here's why. I mean, certainly Cary Grant uh, and Humphrey Bogart are both big draws. Right. Uh, because they both uh, were very charismatic. Yeah. Um, and certainly Jimmy Stewart was charismatic as well. Right. But he... I mean... Cary Grant was, uh, he was, uh, I don't know, his, he, he, he would play kind of a cad sometimes. Yeah. And, um, and Humphrey Bogart would, of course, play like a, a, a thug or someone uh, violent sometimes. Yeah. Jimmy Stewart, I think he's a bigger movie star because he so embodies uh, Americana, at least from the white American point of view that was watching his movies when they came out. Right. You know, I'm not going to obviously, nothing's that simple. Yeah, uh, as as Jimmy Stewart is American, but but that's why I think that uh, that's why I would call him the biggest movie star of all time. Okay, and I guess he certainly is. I guess he certainly is uh, different from the other two because you know you're in life you're not likely to run across a Cary Grant even back then. You yeah. Know? Uh, nor would you be any more likely to run across a Humphrey Bogart. You know. Just yeah. Unless you run in certain circles. Ex- exactly. But like Jimmy Stewart, he really did seem like somebody you could know. You know, uh-huh. And somebody you probably admired. I'd say he had that yeah. in common with like like a Henry Fonda. Yes, um, but uh, and of course Henry Fonda was his best friend. Yeah, it, I mean, good lord! Like, can you imagine them like just the two of them playing poker or something? It's just like well, that's not apparently what they did. I uh, I know a lot about Jimmy Stewart uh, and being my favorite my favorite actor. For one thing, uh, Henry Fonda, uh, noted liberal, yeah. strong liberal hero. Uh, Jimmy Stewart. Uh, Big old Republican. Yeah. Um, best of friends. Uh, and I'm I think not that's, sure if I that, like the way you said that. What? Noted liberal. Big old Republican. <laughs> I don't think I cared for that. Okay. He, yeah. He was, a, well, he was like a Reagan supporter and everything. <laughs> so like, it's fine. Move on. Yes. Go on. Uh, but um, they were great friends. Apparently what they would do together is they would get together and silently put together model airplanes for hours at a time. Awesome! Don't you wish you just had like just fifteen minutes of that on 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 like sixteen millimeter that you could play at your house? Uh, yes, immensely. <laughs> and uh, 
and I would bet it would be more interesting than most movies made today. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, he just, what's interesting though, and you've mentioned this to me, so I'll just kind of touch on it and then let you, let you go. Cause you've, you've really put a lot of thought into this that like he started out as synonymous with idealism. And then after a certain point, both in his career and in the life of the U.S., mm-hmm. there was a shift. So talk about that. Well, it's it's more subtle than that because to the end, he was a very idealistic person. Absolutely. And he thought that movies uh, should – there was a reason he sort of stopped taking movie roles. And it's because when movies got – uh, darker and more cynical in you know in, in the in the 60s American mm-hmm. movies started to do that uh, he just didn't want to participate in that yeah that, that wasn't what he wanted movies to be um, but yeah th- there's early obviously if you look at like Mr. Smith Goes to Washington is a perfect example yeah. that's the kind of movie that he wanted to make early in his career it's uh, it's not subtle it's not really complex it's very sentimental uh, and it's very idealistic and it doesn't have any doubts about itself. Right. It seems like after the war, it would be reductive to say that he went to the war and came back cynical. Right. Because he didn't. He was never really a cynic. Yeah. But he, he I think he, he understood that uh, America had become more cynical. Right. And that it, uh, Mr. Smith Goes to Washington wasn't going to work anymore. Right. Uh, so that's why you see him. He starts, you know, he comes back, he's in rope. Yeah. And, you know, he starts working with Hitchcock, Rope, Rear Window, and Vertigo. Yeah. Uh, I have not seen uh, his the, the remake of The Man Who Knew Too Much. Oh, uh, no, I, I haven't either, actually. I've only seen the 1930s right. uh, version. Um, so I've seen three of his, his four Hitchcock yeah. movies. And, again, these, uh, these are essentially, essentially positive movies. And his character in Rope is... Uh, he, I mean, that... He has a very strong point of view and almost a moral like message uh, in that movie, but the movie itself is so much darker. Yeah. And uh, his, you know, his teachings in a way, I mean, not in a way. This is sort of the point of the movie, main a main plot point of the movie is that his teachings have led two of his students to do something very much against what he was trying to teach. Right. Uh, so the, the, that complexity grew. But he never lost his idealism. No, and and that certainly shows in uh, the uh, Preminger film Anatomy of a Murder, mm-hmm. where he plays you know a, a character that you know on paper he could seem either cynical or idealistic. Like he, you could have played him either way. Uh-huh. Jimmy Stewart plays him both. Yeah, where he's a guy who really has seen a lot and is not really surprised by anything anymore. Yeah, but. He still, you know, it's like if he believes something, he's going to go ahead with it. You know, he's a man of integrity. You know, uh, it, it's very jarring, to, you know, speaking of Henry Fonda, it's very jarring to see him as a villain in uh, Once Upon a Time in the West. Uh-huh. Um, to the point that I'm not even 100% sure I bought him as a villain. Hmm. Um, and much in the same way, I I don't think, has Jimmy Stewart ever played a villain? I mean, like, a, a straight-up villain. I mean, you could say that his role in... He's not a villain in Rear Window. He's a creepy guy, right? You know, and he's not a he's not 100 percent pure in Vertigo. I'm trying to think if, he, if there's anything you could call him. I mean, in some of his in some of his westerns, he was less than savory, but I okay. wouldn't I wouldn't call him a, a villain. Okay, and that's I, I just I don't think people would buy it. You know, um, 
Not to suggest he wouldn't do a really... I I think it'd be amazing to see him as a villain. But uh, just... I don't think... He just... You could tell as a person, he just probably had a great deal of integrity and probably couldn't hide that, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, I want to talk real quick. We we should wrap up, but uh, this has been an... uh, uh, a show of me recommending movies to people. All right. Um, there are three main directors at three different stages that, that Jimmy Stewart worked with. He did a bunch of films with Capra. Yeah. He did four films with Hitchcock. And then he did some films with John Ford. Yeah. Um, and, of course, everyone knows, you know, the man who shot Liberty Valance. Yeah. Uh, people should seek out a movie called Two Road Together, hmm. uh, which he's in. Um, he's one of the titular two. Uh, and, again, he's he's actually a pretty cynical and jaded character in that. Uh it's it has a somewhat positive ending for him if a little selfish it's it's a it's highly recommended it's one of the lesser known john ford films i think okay uh, and i yeah i highly recommend it he's also in uh john wayne's last film the shootist as uh, as the doctor and that's yeah. a great movie they were great friends too yeah and it's it shows i mean when you see the two of them interact it really feels like old friends talking and uh so all right so those are our our uh, favorite male actors Next week, female actors. Uh-huh. And, uh, you know, of course, if you want to email us uh, about some actors that you really love, um, you can email us, email us at uh, battleshippretension at hotmail.com. Or we do have a Facebook page, and actually this discussion was already started by somebody else on there, so you're welcome to take part in it there as well. So uh, thank you very much for listening. Oh, and buy our stuff at our store. Oh, and go to our store and buy our, our gear, BP gear. <laughs> All right, we'll get you next time. All right, bye. Bye.